Hi everyone, welcome to February's Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of thehorse.com. Tonight, our topic is vesicular stomatitis and emerging equine disease. Honestly, before working for the horse, I'd never heard of this disease. Here in Oregon, it hasn't been too much of an issue. But if you've subscribed to our e-newsletters over the past year, you've definitely seen photos of horses with VS and the nasty wounds it creates on the horse's mouth, tongue, and nose. This past summer, it seemed like every week we had a new case or quarantine to report that was taking place in Colorado and the surrounding states. And it keeps feeling a little bit closer to home with each report. We're fortunate tonight to be joined by two leading experts on this disease. We have Dr. Angela Pelzel McCleskey, who is an epidemiologist with the USDA, and Dr. Paul Morley from Colorado State University, who is also an epidemiologist and director of infection control at the CSU Veterinary Teaching Hospital. They're here to answer questions from those of you who live in affected states and those of us who might transport our horses through places with the disease. Welcome to both of you doctors and thanks for being here with us tonight. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to start with you, Dr. Pelzel McCluskey. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, what you do? Your job description is very long, and so if you could <laughs> explain to uh, to us what your responsibilities are, so people can understand what role you play in equine disease. Sure, Michelle. So I'm a national equine epidemiologist for USDA APHIS Veterinary Services. And basically, I'm responsible for overseeing and advising on the federal response to reportable diseases that occur in horses in the United States. Um, my involvement with vesicular stomatitis um, has been pretty extensive, unfortunately, the past few years. But I've been involved in all of our responses in the U.S. since about 2004 at many different levels, actually. I've been involved both in the field, um, in the regional level, and also at the national level. And currently, I'm the National Situation Unit Leader for Vesicular Stomatitis, and I've held that since 2006. So all of the national situation reports that we post on the uh, APHIS Veterinary Services website to keep people updated on the status of um, the affected states, uh, those are all generated by me and posted for the public use. And Dr. Morley, you also have a long job title and lots of letters after your name and wear several hats. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with VS in Colorado? Sure. I'm a veterinarian and a, a board-certified internal medicine specialist. And uh, since I moved to Colorado in 1998, uh, VS was one of the first diseases that I had to deal with in my role as the director of infection control for the James L. Voss Veterinary Teaching Hospital. Um, we were experiencing a major outbreak at that time, and it was kind of a, a shock to come in and have to deal with the possibility of a reportable disease coming into our hospital. So I deal with uh, this disease in, a, in trying to maintain um, prevention efforts in our hospital population, as well as advise veterinarians and horse owners about protecting their horses uh, from this disease. And uh, as we'll talk about, you know, VS has been, a, has been a reoccurring theme in Colorado, and so this is something that we deal with on a regular basis. Okay. So everyone who's listening live will be asking questions that were submitted during registration over the next hour, but I also want to encourage you, uh, whether or not you have experience or know about VS, to ask questions. Um, 
because I don't live in an area with this disease, I have a lot of questions. And so even basic questions were, were up for taking tonight. Um, so we're going to start with you, um, Dr. Pazel McCluskey. Can you explain to us what an emerging disease is? Because it sounds pretty ominous. Um, and why certain diseases, such as VS, are tracked and required to be reported at the state and federal levels. Sure, Michelle, I'd be happy to. So a disease is basically considered to be emerging when it meets at least one of three general criteria. Uh, the first criteria is when a disease is identified somewhere in the world for the very first time. So an example of that would be like SARS or Ebola. Another criteria is when the disease evolves or changes in some way, either in the severity of the disease increasing or in the species of the animal that can become infected or some other behavior, behavioral change in the pathogen itself. And then the third criterion is a change in the disease historic geographic range or the incidence of the disease within a range. So any one of those criterion, um, if a disease is meeting one, that can be considered an emerging disease. I would say that we've probably met that third criteria for emerging disease during the 2015 vesicular stomatitis outbreak. Um, although the disease did occur in the correct historic geographic location, the southwestern U.S., and along up the Rocky Mountains where we've seen all of our U.S. outbreaks since at least 1981, um, we did have a much higher incidence of the disease this year as compared to previous outbreak years. So in 2015, we had a total of 823 known infected premises in eight different states, which is really the largest recorded U.S. Out outbreak that we've had in a single year in recent recorded history. You also asked about why certain equine diseases are required to be reported to a state or a federal animal health official. Reportable or regulatory diseases are generally any infectious diseases which are internationally reportable to the World Organization for Animal Health. But also included in this are any diseases which may threaten the national herd, either by their clinical features or perhaps by their impact on international trade. So vesicular stomatitis is one of those diseases that does have serious impacts on our international trade with some other countries when we have an outbreak. So that's why it's reportable to state and federal animal health officials. Yeah. So it was really interesting reading the questions that, that came in for this event because we had this range of people maybe that are in Colorado saying emerging disease, this has been around forever um, and we've been dealing with it. Um, and you mentioned since 1981. Is that, is that what, what you said, doctor? Yep, that's correct. Okay. So then on the other end of the spectrum, we had tons of questions from other parts of the country and around the world saying, what is this disease? I've never heard of it. And so it, it's really interesting that people have this really, um, have a lot of experience with it or have none at all. And so again, those of you listening, uh, please send in your questions so that, that we can get to those. Um, and then Dr. Morley, we have a question that was sent in during registration. We have um, Lydia in British Columbia and we also have uh, Hula in California and they they asked similar questions. They want to know back right from the basics, what is the cause of VS and how is this disease transmitted? Well, those are good questions and, and just starting our understanding of this disease and um, a vesicular stomatitis is a, is a virus caused disease um, and it, it's actually a, a type of virus that we would call an arbovirus or a virus that's transmitted by insects. And so um, it's 
it is uh, uh, transmitted by uh, midges or small biting flies uh, like black flies um, that would feed on a on an open lesion uh, that is that's caused by this virus uh, and and it's transmitted to another horse by biting them so the vesicular stomatitis part of this the, the vesicles or blisters are caused by the infection um, and so that you you get transmission of the virus primarily through these through these insects that are uh, that are moved from one horse to another but you can also transmit the virus directly by horses coming in contact with another with the lesions on another horse or by virus that might be on a, a water or on a surface or even on a even on a person's hand like the owner or a veterinarian or a farrier or something like that okay um Dr. Pelzel McCluskey, Maria sent us a question via email and she wants to know what are the clinical signs of ES and why is it important to promptly recognize animals with the disease? Yeah, the second part of that question is my favorite. I, I think that's a really good piece we'll get to in just a moment. Um, the most common clinical signs that we see are the vesicles, which, which Dr. Morley mentioned, and those are just blisters that occur on the muzzle, the nose, the lips, or the tongue of an animal most commonly. And these vesicles or blisters eventually rupture, and they look like ulcers or crusty patches, and we refer to those as lesions. So you might hear us talk about vesicular stomatitis lesions. These lesions can occur on other parts of the body too, such as the sheath, the udder, um, inside of the ears, or even along the coronary bands just above the hooves. When those lesions occur on the lips or the tongue, the horses are typically seen to be drooling uh, quite profusely, and they have difficulty eating or drinking. It's very painful where the lesions are located, so they tend to go off feed, and that may be the first clinical sign that someone might see. They may or may not have a fever. Both, both of those clinical presentations have been reported. Um, when the horses have lesions along the coronary band, just above the hooves, um, some of them become very lame, um, so you can have varying degrees of lameness depending on um, the severity of the lesions on the coronary bands. So the second part of the question, you know, why do we want to promptly recognize these animals with disease? Well, the reason we want to do that is we want to identify and quarantine the animal with vesicular stomatitis lesions right away because the virus that causes the disease is being shed from those lesions themselves. So just as Dr. Morley mentioned, the lesion animals can be a source of spread to other animals um, or continuing spread to the fly population that's still moving around. So we want to quickly isolate those lesioned horses until the point in time when they're no longer shedding virus from those lesions. So we had a question also from Amy in Colorado, and she wants to make sure that you mention that it can present in the horse's feet, which, which you did. Um, she said that her horses contracted it last July, and she didn't know about the, the clinical signs in the feet. Is this something that people are aware of, is that these uh, lesions show up on the feet? And is it where the, something where the horse could get the lesions on the feet and not get them on the mouth or get them on the feet first? Yep, they can be in any one of those locations, all of them, or, or just one or two of them. And, and so each clinical presentation might be a little different in each individual horse, depending on where the infected flies are biting. We've even seen some really interesting presentations where um, cuts or scrapes or open wounds on other parts of the body can serve as a place where um, infected flies can feed and transmit virus to those open wounds on the haired surface of the animal. And that's pretty unusual, but we have isolated virus from those types of 
of wounds. Um, so really anywhere that the fly is biting, obviously the places where we don't have a lot of haired surfaces, like along the lips and muzzle, the sheath, coronary bands, udders, you know, that's their favorite places to really transmit and for us to see the vesicles. But certainly if they have an open wound, we can get transmission into that open wound just by the fact of the fly biting there as well. Dr. Morley, we have a question for you from Margie in Wilmington, Delaware. And Margie wants to know about her horses and the sores that they've had that they have assumed were from foxtails or cheatgrass in the hay. She said she got new hay and the sores went away. Is it possible that this could be VS or does VS get confused or um, mistaken for uh, cheatgrass sores and vice versa? Well, that's a really good question, Margie. Um, the, the, the people that have been on the front lines in investigating and uh, trying to understand which horses are infected with VS have described the fact that you never knew how many sores and bumps and owies that horses have in their mouth until you start looking at a whole bunch. And so horses actually pretty frequently have uh, either traumatic lesions from a, from a bump on a, when they're being trailered or, or when they're messing around with another horse or from a, from a bit. Uh, and those can, those can sometimes look uh, like, a, like a healing lesion, particularly after the, the they've sloughed. Um, it, it has been described uh, in a number of different circumstances where uh, there's been feed that might contain a chemical or they can be, it can contain rough material then when you switch the horses onto that feed, they end up with a lot of lesions in their mouth. And, and just, like, just like Margie said, you know, if you change the feed to something that doesn't have this coarse material, it goes away. So there are a lot of different kinds of lesions that can be confused with VS, particularly when we're talking about sores in the mouth. When we're talking about sores in other areas like prepuce and those kinds of things and, and coronary band lesions, there's fewer things that we would confuse. So, Dr. Morley, do you find during the, the height of an outbreak that people are misidentifying sores and, um, and contacting the hospital and thinking their horses have VS when they don't? We, we have a lot of questions about that. And, and when, we're, uh, when we're in the middle of an outbreak, we have um, veterinarians examining horses before they're brought into our hospital, just like we would recommend that if you were going to a horse show or some other type of event, that you would have someone looking in their mouths uh, before they were brought into the grounds. And so any time you start looking in horses' mouths, you'll start finding these lesions. And if it's in the middle of a VS epidemic, you'll have questions about, is this VS or not? And Dr. Morley, we have a question from Lydia in Ontario, Canada, and she wants to know, how is VS treated? Well, because it's a viral disease, we don't have uh, specific treatments like an antibiotic that we would give to treat the viral infection. So unfortunately, the virus, uh, the infection with the virus has to run its course. Most of the treatment that we have to deal with in these horses goes to uh, providing them good nursing care or good supportive care. If you've seen pictures of horses with, with vesicular stomatitis or, or other animals that can have VS like cattle or sheep, um, you'll notice that there can be quite extensive erosions. It'd be like having massive amounts of, of uh, canker sores in your mouth. And it can be so bad that large sections of the, of the outer layer of, of skin that lines the tongue 
can actually come off. And you can imagine how sore that would make a horse. Um, the lesions around the coronary band, around the prepuce, those kinds of things can also be just as sore when they're when those when that skin is eroded. So the the important thing that we do with these horses is to try and um, keep those clean so that they don't get infected with bacteria. Um, and then we can also try to give the horses uh, soft feed so that that doesn't irritate their mouth so that they can get adequate amounts of nutrition. But regardless of this, horses can be so sore that they actually are losing quite a bit of weight and they can become quite dehydrated because it, it bothers them even to drink. So we sometimes have had to even provide IV fluids in these horses. In those extreme cases, it's sometimes necessary to uh, treat them with antibiotics. Um, other things that can be helpful would be to wash out the mouth with a, with a salty solution um, and, and use, a, if you have an external sore, like around the coronary band or on the ears or on the, uh, on the prepuce or something like that, then you can use a, an antibiotic cream to help keep that covered and, and protected and from further erosions. Of course, working with your veterinarian is the, is the first thing you want to do in these cases. That's your horse healthcare expert. And so always remember to call your veterinarian when you have questions about how to treat your horse. And Dr. Morley, Karen in Ellensburg, Washington wants to know what the rate of recovery is for horses that have VS. Well, fortunately, most animals that get vesicular stomatitis, they recover spontaneously without the, nest, without the need to do it to some of the extreme treatments that we talked about. Um, the, the, the time period that it takes for many of these horses to, to recover from, from simple lesions um, can be two to three weeks for, that, for the skin to grow back over those erosions that might be found in the mouth. Now there are extensive lesions in some animals like we mentioned and it can take longer periods of time for those to heal. But um, essentially all of the horses will recover. There are, there are a few situations that we've heard of where let's say it's a, a very old horse that maybe got diseased and they had bad teeth anyway and were not perhaps in the best uh, best flesh and so they really didn't have any to lose and it can create a situation where we have to euthanize to for the for the welfare of the horse but those are pretty those are pretty rare occurrences um, uh, Dr. Pelzo McCluskey may have a, another opinion about or may have additional information to give about that yeah, Paul, actually um, some of the problems that we've had with horses healing in the past have had to do with um, older horses with metabolic disease, like Cushinoid-type horses, um, and already their ability to heal um, any wound or lesion is, is already compromised in those conditions with metabolic disease. So those horses do really struggle, especially with the sloughing tongue lesions that are really extensive. They may take months to heal and require a lot longer supportive care and a little more, um, a little more attention from the owners and their veterinarians to get them through that and and that's been the main type of, of horse that has really struggled with recovery I think the older and then sometimes the metabolic disease or, or the immune uh, deficient type horse. So once a horse has had this disease can they get it again? Oh yes unfortunately that's one of our our problems is that you know if they do have any sort of protection from natural exposure um, we found it's pretty short-lived and, and in subsequent outbreaks they may um, contract the infection yet again unfortunately. 
Dr. Morley, we have a question from Joy in Sheridan, Oregon, and she says she runs a horse rescue, and she wonders what is the incubation period on BS? It's a little bit variable, but most of the, of the studies that have looked at this would say that the incubation period is between two and eight days. And as Angela mentioned before, the earliest signs would be uh, a fever if you were right you but you may miss that if you're not regularly monitoring the temperatures in which case then you'll you'll see the the symptoms of having these blisters in the mouth and that's that's the the salivation and those kinds of things that's probably the, the earliest thing that people noticed um we have a question for Dr. Morley from Diane in New Jersey and she said that she was told that her cat has stomatitis. Is it the same condition or is it uh, different in horses? No, this is, this is a different condition in cats. Um, the, the word stomatitis comes from two Greek words, stoma meaning mouth and itis, which means inflammation. And so quite literally all it means is inflammation of the mouth. And you can think of a lot of different things that can cause inflammation. And so you can hear this term applied in a lot of different circumstances and just because uh, um, uh, a, a cat had stomatitis it doesn't mean it was infected with the with the vesicular stomatitis virus and in fact it, it's not documented that it will infect cats. So Dr. Morley what species can get vesicular stomatitis and is it the, a different disease in each animal, and is it something that humans can get as well? We would call it the same disease, regardless of what species it is, and we would have to differentiate it based upon understanding what what, what the infectious cause was. But it's but it's it can infect horses and cattle uh, and sheep are probably the most common species, but it also can infect pigs and uh, sometimes we can get it into uh, llamas or alpacas as well. Um, it has been documented to uh, occur in humans very rarely. So if you were, and, and the circumstances of that would be uh, if you were handling an animal that had these, these blisters in its mouth and it was shedding virus and you happened to get it on your hands and you might have a cut on your hands, then you could possibly be infected, but, but that's pretty rare. Uh, and it's self-limiting and, and not reported to be a major problem. The, the fact that it gets into these different species is one of the reasons why vesicular stomatitis is an, such an important disease worldwide from a regulatory condition. Because this, these diseases which are, uh, the symptoms are these blisters around the mouth and around the feet, are, are, can be very, very important, more important than VS. So foot and mouth disease, which you may have heard of, or swine vesicular disease uh, are a couple of those diseases which have far greater importance uh, to, to livestock production and trade of livestock worldwide. Because you can't tell these diseases apart based simply on their clinical signs, then vesicular stomatitis for a long time was listed in the same category as these very, very dangerous uh, diseases like foot and mouth disease. So, Dr. Uh, Pazel McCluskey, that makes me wonder about the economic impact of VS. Uh, do we have numbers? Do we know how much it's impacting 
the states uh, and movement of livestock and horses? You know, Michelle, that's really um, been difficult for us to capture, but I can certainly describe what the economic impacts themselves have been, even though we can't really put a complete number or a monetary amount on them. Um, most of the impacts have had to do with um, the difficulty in moving horses or other livestock. And there's a couple of different ways that happens. The international movement is definitely affected right away, and for the entirety of the outbreak outbreak, however long it goes on in whatever states it occurs in. And our main international impact has been our trade with Canada and horses and other livestock moving back and forth to Canada. Um, so that impact is usually pretty large. We don't really, we aren't able to um, get U.S. horses from affected states to Canada while those states are being affected. And it's also really difficult for some of the Canadian horses to come down to some of our shows and events and then be able to get back home um, when they've been um, near an outbreak zone or, or even just in an affected state. So that's been some really serious impacts in the international movement. Um, also, we have other countries besides Canada who put requirements on any U.S. livestock coming from any state, affected or not, um, for testing for vesicular stomatitis because other countries are very concerned about not getting titered animals. Um, really a titered animal, an animal that has antibody evidence that it's been exposed is not a dangerous animal at all. It can't, um, it doesn't have the disease currently and it can't transmit the virus. Um, but that's something that other countries have been slow to accept. So we do struggle with um, horses or cattle or other species having to be tested to go out of the country when we're in an outbreak year. The interstate movement is also very difficult because each state changes its state movement requirements or entry requirements when we have um, a vesicular stomatitis outbreak. So it, it's it's harder to move a horse from an affected state to a non-affected state during an outbreak time. And that impact is mainly borne by the horse owner themselves in getting a shorter uh, health certificate from their veterinarian to move an animal, um, or certainly they may not be able to move the animal at all depending on where they're located. And finally, we get shows and events, um, mainly equine shows and events, that are seriously affected um, during an outbreak. And it may be because um, horses coming from out of state, um, those owners may be concerned about being able to get their animal back to their home state um, and how difficult those reentry requirements might be. And they simply may choose not to come to the show or event in the affected state. And that certainly has an economic impact on the show, on the hotel, on the cities, um, all of those that are involved involved uh, in putting on a large equine event that can have some serious economic impacts. So Dr. Pazil McCluskey, did you see in the states that were affected this last year lots of events being shut down or closed before, before they happened? You know, I have to say, um, most of the time, the events that are going on in the affected states do continue to be put on. Um, and local horses and even horses from nearby states that are also affected states, um, they are able to get those animals in and out of that show. And typically, those event managers just have to be extra diligent and perhaps provide some extra biosecurity, um, some containment plans, and also maybe be checking horses at the gate to make sure we don't have lesioned horses that um, got missed on their shorter health certificate by their veterinarian and are showing up at the gate with lesions, which could cause a problem with the show or a quarantine at the show. Um, but other than that, I haven't really heard of entire events being canceled. It's just a little bit more difficult to get all of the entries that you normally would and get them home in a timely fashion. Dr. 
Pazelma Kleski, we have a question from our live audience for you. Linda is in Delta County, Colorado, and she is wondering if veterinarians know why some counties were hit so hard or so much harder than other counties. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so we, we've been watching this disease for over 50 years and trying to figure out exactly that question. You know, in Colorado, we do have some some things where the way that we have set up our irrigation canals and the way we move water in the state and the way the water naturally moves tends to predispose us to having um, outbreaks in certain locations. Um, these black flies typically will lay their eggs in moving water. So creeks and streams and irrigation canals are really prime territory for black flies laying their eggs and for infected flies to hatch back out. And typically we see infection move downstream. So if you have one infected premises that's upstream, you can watch as that premises becomes infected and you get lesioned animals. Pretty soon you'll start to see lesioned animals popping up on premises further downstream as the flies move with the water. So we have issues in specific states um, and certainly in different specific regions along the Front Range um, and also on the western slope of Colorado where the way that water moves or the way that we move water has really impacted the areas where we do get those outbreaks and where we see them, um, you know, within 10-year cycles or 8-year cycles, they tend to occur in those similar places. And we have uh, another question from our live audience and this one's for you, Dr. Morley. Uh, Moy is listening and would like to know if VS is a threat in the wintertime when there are no flies? Well, the virus is, uh, we don't actually know where it overwinters or it survives. Um, that's, a, that's a big question that we have about, um, you, know, what ha you know, how this comes back from year to year. But the major reason that we get new cases is by these infected black flies that, that Angela was describing. So, as you know, you know, flying insects, they die off in the winter. And um, so we, we don't believe that there's any transmission that happens during the winter into, into animals like horses or cattle. Now, this year was a bit of an exception in, in, the, in the stance that we had disease cases that, that came up pretty late in the year. And Angela can give you more specific details about that. But, but, but in other years, it really has died off. The, the occurrence of new, new cases has died off as soon as we get a hard frost or, or especially when we get snow on the ground. Yeah, that definitely does help when we start to get those hard freezes and, and that snow, Paul. Um, certainly for the black flies transmitting, I think one of the problems that we've had in, in recent years, specifically more with cattle cases than it is with horse cases, is the, the reoccurrence and the popping up during the winter of these tulicoide species, these biting midges. Unfortunately, the biting midges don't completely die off with heavy freezes. What they do is they sort of get the larvae and the eggs trapped in the frozen mud and any sort of a warm day or a, um, a melting of that mud around like a water trough is, is where we see it a lot with cattle where there's a lot of mud. Um, when that freezing sort of thaws out on a sunny day, we do have those biting midges that pop back out um, and are still infected critters. Um, and unfortunately, that did cause a few of our cattle cases that we saw here in Colorado um, December through just a few weeks ago. Um, and also the continued transmission within the herd from cow to cow has been a problem for us in Colorado this year, specifically in beef herds. 
because the animals themselves, as they're congregating around um, seed licks and salt blocks and water sources, um, because of the winter or the hay, let's say, um, they're congregating more closely together and they're actually spreading the disease from lesioned animals directly. And we were getting a higher percentage of the herd that was actually showing lesions and it was maintaining virus for longer periods on these salt licks um, or from eating around the same hay sources and being closely congregated. So we did have longer transmission even within the herd that also caused us to see those cases in the middle of winter. So, Dr. Pazell McCluskey, this year has been an El Nino year, and I know here in Oregon it's been uh, unseasonably warm all winter uh, and wet. Uh, do you feel that that has any kind of impact on on VS and seeing these cases during the winter? Generally, we think it does. There's a lot of great ecological research that really still needs to be done about this disease and about the different factors in, in nature and in the environment that help predispose to these outbreak years. And we're really hopeful that with a lot of the climate change money and, and other research opportunities that are coming out related to that, that maybe someone will take a closer look at vesicular stomatitis and, and these questions. But Certainly, um, the virus likes the cold and the wet. Um, we do know that um, the virus does survive and can be passed um, through the eggs of black flies. So that is certainly one mechanism that we're aware that this overwintering can occur, where the black fly can deposit the virus into its eggs. And then next spring, when the eggs hatch, um, those flies are also already infected. So that's about the only main mechanism that we know exists for overwintering, but as Paul says, there may be many other ways that that's happening that we have not yet identified. So uh, we have a question, Dr. Pazell McCluskey from Judy in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and she says that she lives on the East Coast. Is there any reason that she should be concerned about this disease? Oh gosh, you would think not, right? Oh, poor Judy. I'm sorry, Judy. I can tell you that um, in the 1950s, we did have three different outbreak years during the 1950s that involved the state of Virginia. Um, and many other states in the eastern region of the country have been infected uh, many years ago. Now, since the 1980s, since 1981 specifically, um, we have seen this pattern where we only see cases popping up beginning in the, in the southwestern United States and then running up the front range and staying along um, out west here along the Rocky Mountains. But certainly I think our history has shown, um, even all the way back to Civil War days, um, we have recorded outbreaks of what we think was vesicular stomatitis that occurred in almost every state in the Union. So that kind of gives us pause, right, because we really want to make sure that we don't move these lesioned animals um, while they're expressing virus into places where they could possibly seed the virus into the local fly populations and cause a future outbreak. We don't know if that really happens, but we assume that that's possible given the history of where else this disease has occurred in the U.S. Um, and really we've had it everywhere at some point in time. So we have a question from our live audience for Dr. Morley, and it is from Dan, who manages a fairgrounds in a county in northern New Mexico that borders Colorado. And he would like to know what he and his colleagues could do to control and prevent the spread of the disease, specifically at their facility. Well, the the, the treatment is, is uh, as we said, rather disappointing in a sense we don't have something we can give to cure it. So we would really like to prevent this every time we can. 
Fortunately, there are some things that have been shown to be fairly effective in preventing um, the spread of the disease. The first one, of course, is that we would not have animals that have these lesions brought in proximity to other horses. So if you had a, if you had a riding stable or if you had a show, it would be very important to be checking horses that are being brought in during epidemic years to make sure that they don't have any of these lesions in their mouth or in other places. The only time that, that horses shed the virus that we know or can be transmitted to flies that we know is when they have these open lesions. So if we screen based upon the presence or absence of these, of these open lesions, we've done a lot to prevent that transmission by bringing in horses that are shedding virus. The second thing we do is to control the populations of black flies as well as to control the exposure in the horses. There's pretty good evidence to say that um, horses that are out at pasture or in paddocks, that if we'll simply bring them inside during times when there's more active feeding, so early in the morning and late at night, or as, as dust comes on, um, that we would, um, that you do, you, you provide quite a bit of protection for the horses. We also know that if we apply um, sheets or masks to horses, that also prevents the flies from getting access to the skin, and so therefore they can't bite. If you're going to use a, uh, an insect repellent, please only use one that is labeled for use in horses. The ones that are labeled for those uses are, um, they contain pyrethrin or pyrethroids. That's a, that's a more natural compound. It's pretty mild. It actually comes from uh, a compound that was originally derived from uh, chrysanthemum flowers. Uh, so those are the ones that we would use. Don't ever use a fly spray that, that contains DEET, like you might buy in the, in the um, pharmacy for yourself. Uh, and never, of course, use, a, use an insect repellent that's made for uh, facilities or something like that. So, so those things are the, are provide, the, provide the, the benchmarks for what we would want to use, um, preventing importation of or bringing in of horses that have these lesions, and then controlling access of flies to the animals. And if you have the ability to uh, get rid of standing water, um, or other things where that might promote insect populations of growing, then, then um, that, that's another thing that we could do. So, Dr. Morley, if I uh, had horses coming and going off my property, is there a quarantine that I can put in place that would protect my resident horses from new horses that are showing up? Well, that's a really good question. <clears throat> Anytime you're bringing in horses, regardless of whether it's during a, a vesicular stomas titus outbreak or, or any other time, it's better if you would bring those horses in and hold them uh, at some place that's not, not in contact with the rest of the horses that are on your premises, even if that's for a day or two. We would always recommend in those horses that you're closely observing them for signs of respiratory disease or diarrhea or these blisters that we're talking about related to VES. And then you're also taking their temperature. You also want to make sure that you're handling them last, not first, right? So that you would handle the, the resident unaffected horses before you would handle a horse that might be shedding some type of contagious disease. With an incubation period of two to eight days that we were talking about, that quarantine period of one to two weeks uh, uh, is, a, is a good timing 
to potentially use for bringing in new animals that you have that may have come from areas where they might have been exposed. And Dr. Morley, we have a question from Karen in Grand Junction, Colorado, and she wants to know what is the best way to avoid a horse contracting this when you're taking the horse to shows and events. Is there anything that you as a horse owner can do to help disinfect the stall or prevent exposure? Well, you would use the same precautions that we were talking about before for your individual horse. So you would make sure that you were, um, you were using a sheet uh, uh, and a mask. Um, the mask that you see uh, nowadays that have the ear pieces in them, those are especially good uh, with, with the concerns about the, the black flies biting on the ears and causing these lesions that, that Angela described earlier. Um, also, the use of these uh, pyrethroid uh, insect repellents, insect repellents that are specifically labeled for use on animals, those are very good. Now, because the virus can be transmitted via contact, you want to make sure that your horse are, is avoiding direct contact with other horses. That's always a good idea, regardless of whether it's for VS or influenza or strangles or salmonella or anything. So. Um, although you want to be friendly with other people, it's really best that when you bring stranger horses together that you not allow them to come in contact with each other. It's also better if you not use common waterers uh, because horses can shed VS onto surfaces and then your horse could pick that up by coming in contact, to it, contact with it, whether it's a feeder or a water or something like that. Again, always better to have your own feeder, waterer, your own tack, your own grooming tools, all of those things for VS, but also for a, a wide variety of, of other diseases. And Dr. Morley, since I have worked for the horse for the past four years, I've become um, really paranoid about my horses picking up diseases when we go to horse shows or, or to trailheads to ride. Um, and one of the things that concerns me is shared hoses that we often see at showgrounds where the hose is uh, provided by the facility and they're hooked up to the hydrant and everyone on the stall row is pulling that hose and sticking it in their bucket and filling the buckets. Am I being overly cautious when I take my own hose and then hide it away and don't let anyone else use it? <laughs> no, no, you're not being overly paranoid. And, and actually, um, you know, that's, that's very smart. Again, not just for VS, but for strangles and other, and other, and other diseases. Um, you asked me about disinfecting, and I didn't actually address it in my, in my response to your previous question. If you did have to use a hose or anything else that's left there and provided that might have come in contact with another horse, uh, so the stall would be a, you know, the, the big example of that. You don't know what horse was in there, what really has been done. Typically, those are not completely cleaned out and not disinfected. So it's a really good idea to bring your own disinfectant and your own tools and your own bedding so that you can prepare that stall freshly to protect your horse. Now, the same thing would apply to the hose. So what you would want to make sure you did was to remove all of the, the big material, the, the shavings or the, or the straw or whatever it is, take that out and remove it. Of course, all the feces, those kinds of things. Use a hose to, um, to wash down the stalls use some soapy water, soap that you would bring, um, scrub the walls with a brush, brooms are great for that, or a roofing brush, something like that, um, rinse that off, and then apply a disinfectant that you would bring. 
using appropriately diluted disinfectant. We do have a video available on our uh, website at Colorado State, or you can find it via YouTube, uh, that does talk about precautions to take to protect your horse when you're traveling with them. So you might look there too. Okay. Uh, Dr. Uh, Pozel McCluskey, we have a question from Carly in Manitoba, Canada, and she wants to know if there have been any outbreaks of VS in Canada. So not that I'm aware of, um, and certainly not in recent history. I'd probably have to go back um, to much more ancient history to look and see. The closest that it has gotten is um, the 2004 to 2006 outbreak where we had cases um, from the same strain of virus, 2004, 5, and 6, all over wintering in between those years, made it all the way north um, to the middle of Montana. And that's pretty darn close. So, um, you know, I, I would be concerned that certainly we all have the right vectors between the U.S. and Canada. And if we did have an outbreak here um, where we had cases that were getting that close to the border, um, I think it would be possible that we could have cases on the other side in Canada as well. We all have the same vectors and the right environments to do it, so it's certainly possible. Okay. We have uh, a question uh, that came in from our registered uh, participants. And this question is about whether or not the Canadian Department of Ag and the USDA are working together to find a solution so that we can get horses back and forth uh, between the US and Canada for competition. Do you have any, any insight into that? Yeah, that's a really great question. So this has certainly been a problem for us um, for years. And, and unfortunately, we don't have a really great solution yet at this time. Um, currently, what we have to do is for competition horses that you know are going to need to go to Canada, we typically have to move them to a non-affected state in the U.S where they need to reside for at least 21 days before they can um, get the proper health certificate to move from that non-affected state to Canada when we're having an outbreak here. So obviously that's not very convenient, um, especially if you don't know if you're in the start of an outbreak season and we don't really know which states we're going to have positive that year. You may in, and inadvertently move a horse to a state that you think is, is going to be a VSD non-affected state and that state may subsequently come up with cases and, and really make you unable to travel. And that has happened in the past where we've had outbreaks um, in Colorado or Wyoming and we've tried to move horses um, that we know need to go to Canada out of the way and up into Montana and unfortunately in 2006 we had cases in Montana that year and, and we were thwarted uh, trying to get that worked out. So there's no real good solution at this time. We continually do work between um, the CFIA, the, the Canadian um, federal counterpart to USDA. We, we work very closely with them um, to talk through and share information and try to come up with ways um, to move animals as, as easy and, and efficiently as possible. But again, we are still trying to prevent disease movement, and that's always at the heart of those decisions. Okay. Dr. Morley, we have a follow-up question from our live audience. Uh, Doug is listening, and he wants to know why you recommended not to use DEET on horses. Well, I am not a toxicologist, but uh, the, the toxicologists do tell me that that um, horses are uh, more sensitive to DEET than people are. So whereas people would, you know, they recommend choosing a high DEET content insect repellent, and the reason is is that it's actually absorbed into your bloodstream and you can actually apply a small amount of DEET 
you know, like on your wrist or uh, someplace of exposed skin, and and you actually get DEET that's that's released from other parts of your body. Unfortunately, horses are are very sensitive to DEET, and so the toxicologists tell me that that's a that's a big no no. Um, our next question is uh, is Dr. Pazell or is for Dr. Pazell McCluskey, and we have Fonda in Fort Davis, Texas, and she wants to know what the quarantine requirements are after a horse has been diagnosed with BS. Yep, and this is a great question because it has changed. The quarantine requirements have changed from last year to this year, um, and we have a new protocol that's set up that I think is working a lot better for everyone. So currently, what, what happens is when we find a, a confirmed positive case, we quarantine the entire premises. So all animals, all susceptible species present on that premises are placed under quarantine. So it's not an individual animal quarantine, it's the whole premises. And that quarantine stays in place until 14 days from the onset of lesions in the last affected animal on the premises. So basically what that means is we're waiting for the flies to do what they're going to do and cause as many lesions as they're going to cause there with the hope that we're trying to mitigate that, right, with all of the um, all the recommendations that Paul gave you. We're, we're trying to knock back all those flies and prevent cases, um, for further cases on that premises, but we're waiting for as many to break as they're going to break, um, and then we wait for that 14 days from that last animal that's affected so that we can go ahead and release. Now this is different from previous years. In previous years, the quarantine period was 21 days from lesion healing. And that was taking a really long time in some cases. We described for you some of those horses that may be really slow healers, um, older horses or horses that have metabolic issues. Um, we also had issues with horses that had very extensive lesions, like a sloughing tongue, that may take up to two months to heal completely. And so we had premises that were on extraordinarily long quarantine periods. And it wasn't really necessary because we weren't getting continued transmission. The flies were gone. Um, and we weren't getting any more lesion shed um, of the virus. Those lesions were we're done shedding virus and they weren't dangerous anymore. So we did make those changes and we were allowed to do this because just last year, January of 2015, the World Organization for Animal Health removed vesicular stomatitis from their immediately reportable disease list. Now, that did not change our reporting requirements um, to the state or to the federal government in the U.S., and that will not change um, because we still want to control this and make sure we don't get spread to um, other locations in the U.S. where it shouldn't be. But it did allow us a little more flexibility to change what we were doing based more on science. And certainly what we found out is that it's really difficult to isolate virus from those lesioned animals any further than about four or five days post-lesion rupture. We simply can't get live virus out of those lesions anymore. So within a very short period of time, even before the lesions are completely healed, the virus is gone from those lesions and the horse is pretty much safe. Now we don't really want to move those animals right away because a lesioned animal moving obviously can cause some panic. But for all intents and purposes, the shorter quarantine period has been based more on science and really has helped um, the horse owners and the premises owners to very correctly get off their quarantine in a manageable time period. Uh, Dr. Morley, we have a question for you from Jennifer in Old Town, Idaho, and she says that she has pretty much a closed herd. Does she need to be concerned about VS, and what can she do to protect her horses? 
Unfortunately, Jennifer does have to worry about uh, VS, even though she has a closed herd and a closed premises. Um, while she may not have to worry about someone bringing in VS um, because of an animal that has lesions, you can't stop the black flies from flying across fence lines, and, and, and that's where typically we get this spread that's along the creeks that, uh, that, that Angela was talking about. Use the same precautions that we were talking about before when you're trying to protect these horses. So you would want to put them indoors or even in a loafing shed, three-sided loafing shed, uh, uh, in, the, in the time of high insect activity. Uh, put a sheet on them, uh, put a mask on them, and, and, and then also use, these, uh, use the pyrethrin insect repellents on these horses. And we have a question for Dr. Pizel McCluskey, and it's from Betty in Craig, Colorado. And she wants to know if there's a vaccine in the works for VS. This is a great question from Betty. And, and honestly, you know, it, it's one that um, I hope in the future, you know, we might have better science to help us with this. But remember when we talked about earlier that um, even horses that are naturally infected or exposed during an outbreak don't seem to have very long-lasting immunity. Um, and so in subsequent outbreak years, we, we do have um, some of those same animals that break again. They are just simply not protected, even from a natural exposure. Um, we do have an experimental vaccine that was developed many years ago to a much older strain of the virus than we see now. Um, and right now, we're really hoping to try it out um, in some cattle premises. And, and I hope that 2016, if we do get cases in 2016, we're hopeful in Colorado that we'd like to move forward with trying um, some vaccine trials in cattle. It's certainly not ready for horses yet, simply because we don't know if it will protect a horse at all. Um, we know that in, um, the experimental vaccine that we have does produce very high antibody titers. Um, but naturally infected horses and cattle produce very high antibody titers as well. And so we really don't know if it can convey um, protection. But I think as we move forward and as the science improves, um, and certainly as we get to do some clinical, clinical trials in the face of an outbreak, um, it'll be great for us to see whether or not what we have is really efficacious or whether we need to try some, some different direction. Uh, Dr. Morley, we have a question from our live audience. Kelly wants to know if wildlife is impacted by outbreaks, such as deer, elk, or other kinds of animals. Do we know? Uh, the, that's a good question, but um, the the host range for the for the VS virus, uh, to to my knowledge and to what what I've been able to read um, from the from from experts on this virus does not include wild species. So it, it really is more a disease of our, of our livestock species, the horses, the cattle, sheep, um, goats, uh, camelids, and pigs. And Dr. Morley, we have a follow-up question from our live audience. Linda wants to know how long the, um, the infective VS virus can remain on a surface and then infect a horse that's exposed to it. Do we know? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, the virus, when we talk about viruses that, that are transmitted um, between animals through contact or people, uh, there's, there's two kinds of viruses that we, that we think about. They have non-enveloped and enveloped viruses. And without getting real technical, it just means a, a, a thin outer 
uh, fat, fatty layer surrounding the virus. VS is an envelope virus like influenza, like herpes virus, and so it is much easier to kill by, uh, by the environmental conditions, uh, by soaps, by disinfectants than the non-envelope virus. So a non-envelope virus would be like rotavirus, uh, which causes diarrhea and foals, and so rotavirus is very hard to kill. Um, versus the envelope viruses like VS and flu and herpes, which are much easier to kill with our disinfectants. Um, the, the work would, you know, it would suggest that virus might remain viable for a day or a bit longer, uh, but that would be really dependent upon uh, drying and how much sunlight or UV radiation that, that, would, that is on the area where that virus is deposited. In, uh, covered, protected, cool areas that are more moist, it certainly could last a day or even potentially two days. Okay. Um, Dr. Pazell McCluskey, we have a question from Linda in our audience. She lives in Colorado and she says her friend's horse was on a VS quarantine ranch last summer. Is there any danger with her friend bringing her horse to her ranch this summer? No, Linda, there's no danger in that at all. So um, like we've been saying, the only way that a horse um, is able to shed virus and spread virus from one horse to another is when they have those open active lesions. Um, and even when those lesions are mostly healed or partially healed, the virus within four or five days post-lesion rupture, um, those viruses are gone and we're not able to isolate live virus from those horses anymore. So certainly a horse that was exposed last summer um, coming to your place this summer is of no danger at all. Um, the horse is going to have antibodies. It's going to have serologic evidence that it was exposed um, or that it got the disease, but it, it does not still have virus um, in it. We have no um, we have no viremic stage, meaning we don't have a stage in which the virus circulates in the blood of horses or cattle, and so it's not a long-term maintained virus. It's just there for the time that those lesions immediately post-rupture and for four or five days thereafter, and then beyond that, the horse is no longer a danger to anyone. We have a question for Dr. Morley from Fonda in our live audience, and she wants to know if donkeys can get VS. That's a good question. Um, I believe they can. Uh, I believe other equid species as well can get VS, uh, like uh, zebras and that, but I'm going to refer, I'm going to phone a friend. So I'm going to ask Angela to help. <laughs> yeah, we, we have had, Paul, we've had cases in donkeys and mules. Um, in fact, probably the most severe coronary band lesions that I've ever seen on an equid um, took place in 2015, just this recent outbreak, in a mule in Wyoming. And, and those were just really, really severe coronary band lesions. And I'm told that um, I was really interested to see how that mule would heal and whether or not there would be any hoof defects from the severity of those lesions. And, and I'm told, and was shown pictures that um, the mule is 100% sound and, and there were no um, there were no untoward effects from from that healing process and his his hooves are fine but um, yep donkeys mules pretty much all equids okay we have a question e even for you. veterinarians have to call veterinarians sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about uh, trying to treat a, a mule I can't I don't know that they that they're the best patients. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we uh, have a question from uh, Michelle in Montrose, 
Colorado, and she wants to know, Dr. Pizel McCluskey, if we have any projections for the 2016 season. Do we expect to see as many cases this year? So I do expect to see cases. Um, I, I'm not sure that we can figure out what the size of the outbreak will be for 2016. If we look back historically, um, like I mentioned, the 2004, 5, 6 period of, of years where we had the same virus overwintering, um, typically what happens is you'll see um, an outbreak year, and then the, the next outbreak year will be much larger. Um, and in, in history, we've had the following outbreak years get smaller and smaller. And I'm very hopeful that maybe we'll see the same pattern. So certainly with 823 infected premises in 2015, that's a, that's a very, very large number of infected premises. We had a lot of virus out there in the environment and in the fly population. So I fully expect that we will have cases in 2016, but I think it will probably be fewer. I certainly hope it will be fewer. Um, and in, in our estimation, we typically see the rebreaks on the edges of where the outbreak from 2015 last left off. Um, so certainly if you were in a hot zone in 2015, you might see a couple of cases in 2016, but we're hopeful and his, history has shown us that it tends to move on um, outward from those hot zones in 2015 and maybe beyond the edges of the outbreak zones and potentially in new states in 2016. So that's certainly something we need to be aware of. Okay. And that little bell we heard uh, was us running out of time. So I want to thank uh, both of our experts for joining us tonight. We had a great conversation. I learned a lot, which is one of the best parts of my job is getting to learn new stuff about horses and how to take care of Dr. Um, Pazel McCluskey and Dr. Morley, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Michelle. Thanks so Great much for having us. Everyone who listened, this event will be archived on our website if you want to revisit it at thehorse.com. Um, also, keep an eye out on our equine health newsletter that goes out every Tuesday and our welfare newsletter as well uh, for updates on VS and if we have an outbreak this year, the, we will be covering that on thehorse.com. I want to thank everyone who joined us live and everyone who sent in questions for us. Um, both during registration and during the live event. Until next time, I'm Michelle Anderson for TheHorse and TheHorse.com. From all of us here at The Horse, have a great night.